The newspaper account was typical of the time, high on promises and verbose statements, telling its readers that they had, at last, found paradise. The city, it said, quote, finds herself centrally situated in the midst of an agricultural region that cannot be surpassed in the United States in its general fertility and adaptedness to the growth of the temperate and semi-tropical fruits, vegetables, and cereals, end quote. Our climate is the best in the world, it would later say, being exceedingly healthful, the temperature being regular and without the variable change common even in the southern states of the Union. Still later, it went on to boast, quote, Our soil is well adapted to the prosperous growth of all the cereals. It has been practically proven that sugarcane and cotton will flourish exuberantly here. All productions of the garden, vineyard, and orchard thrive splendidly. The olive and the vine, the apple and the orange, the almond and the peach seem equally adapted to the climate and soil, and, in fine, wherever the irrigating stream can be made to reach the plant, the farmer only has to tickle the earth with the hoe, and it laughs with a harvest, unrivaled in its range and profusion. End quote. Finally, it proclaimed that the new settlement, quote, is sure to become one of the principal points in the territory. Our rivals may be, and undoubtedly are, loath to concede this state of things, but nature and the regular course of things human have made it so. End quote. These were bold words, especially because they were the opening editorial in a newspaper that had just barely started production, and was, in fact, still being printed in another city. But in them we find the typical booster spirit of the American West in the 19th century, when today's cornfield was just waiting to become tomorrow's major regional center. So we have to ask ourselves, where was this veritable paradise? this Shangri-La where everything would grow with little effort and the weather was always accommodating and refreshing. Well, you may or may not have seen this answer coming a mile away, but the writer was talking about none other than the hot, dry, desert bowl smack dab in the center of the territory. Phoenix. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 77, American Eden. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we watched as the governorship of John Hoyt was cut unceremoniously short, and as the governorship of John C. Fremont taught us that 99% of life is indeed just showing up. Now, our tour of the 1870s needs to turn to the center part of the state, where it's now time to turn our attention back towards everyone's favorite town on the rise, Phoenix. It hasn't felt that long since we've taken a good hard look at things happening in the Valley of the Sun, so imagine my surprise when I went back in the episode transcripts and found that we talked about the founding and early years of the future state capital exactly 20 episodes ago. So yeah, I guess it really was time to come back around to it. When we last left off the community, an official town site had been declared at what is today the heart of Phoenix, beating out Jack Swilling's preferred location of Mill City. 
And as someone who loves variety and unique signifiers, I can't tell you how glad I am that the capital of Arizona isn't called Mill City. However, even though it had a town site, I should stress that Phoenix was not yet a town. That is, it hadn't incorporated. Instead, boosting for the new settlement fell upon a number of ad hoc bodies, with one of them, the Salt River Valley Town Association, wielding quasi-governmental powers. In the early days, after influential citizen John T. Alsap secured an actual land patent in Prescott, the association began selling off plots that were even then being surveyed. Though bureaucracy being what it was, the actual full 320-acre patent would not be officially granted until 1874. The lots were being sold off for anywhere between $20 and $140 a pop, so that's somewhere between $218 and $2,930 in today's money, which was then being funneled by the association to help with the upkeep of streets and ditches. The town site, as originally surveyed, called for 98 blocks, all separated by wide alleys and streets. As anyone who has driven in the valley knows, they also adopted the enlightened grid system, where main north-south streets cross main east-west streets at right angles. Oh, the grid system. How I do love thee. Seriously, some city planning, like, say, the spaghetti bowl that is Atlanta, gives me anxiety now. The pattern was supposedly modeled on Philadelphia, which had also proven successful in other settlements in the West. Unusually for the time, some of these principal roads were even 100 feet wide instead of mere horse paths. The main east-west streets were named for presidents, which I feel was a very 19th century American thing to do, while the main north-south streets were originally named after Amerindian tribes, It wouldn't be until 1893 that the Amerindian names were changed to the familiar numbered streets and avenues, with avenues being west of Central Avenue and the streets to the east. At the center of the township were public squares that had been reserved by the Salt River Valley Town Association for eventual town and county buildings. They also donated lots for a public school, Protestant church, and Masonic Lodge, because what is a 19th century town without a Masonic Lodge? However, despite their efforts, the association was often the subject of complaints. Mainly because, due to its reliance on the sale of lots and donations, it simply could never raise enough funds to keep up with the town's growth. That fact was compounded by the simple truth that it was basically a glorified HOA, not a real governing entity recognized by federal or territorial law, so it couldn't really do much more anyway. For some services, like law enforcement and welfare programs, citizens had to turn to the county level. Though fortunately, that was now also located in Phoenix. As I mentioned way back in episode 51, originally the territory had four counties. Yuma, Mojave, Pima, and Yavapai. And that last county was a true beast, encompassing all or bits of what is now Pinal, Apache, Gila, Graham, Coconino, Navajo, and Greenlee counties. It also included what we need to talk about now, Maricopa County. To fully understand the formation of Maricopa County, we have to discuss how much Phoenix scared the living bejesus out of Prescott. 
Already wounded from the loss of the territorial capital to Tucson, the last thing Prescott wanted was another population center to creep up in their own backyard, as it were, no matter how large that backyard actually was. But despite their efforts to hold back the formation of this new town on the Salt River, Phoenix was destined to arise from its own ashes, so Prescott was mortified at the prospect of yet another settlement taking a giant chunk out of its political power. However, Phoenicians were not ready quite yet to take a big bite of that apple, but preferred the next best thing, creating a new county just for them. So, during the 1871 Territorial Legislature, Alsap, also a member of that body, introduced a bill to carve out a new county, Maricopa County, from the bottom portion of Yavapai. Using all his politicking skills and influence, he was able to push the measure through, and it was signed by Governor Safford on February 14, 1871. Just another instance of February the 14th being Arizona's lucky day, I guess. But now that there was a new county, that meant it needed a county seat. And already, Phoenix Boosters were pushing for their town site to be named that county seat. At this point, you may be asking, well, yeah, what other options are there? Well, let me tell you, because believe it or not, there were two other choices. Remember that the town site of Phoenix was much, much smaller than the city of Phoenix is today. So, aside from Phoenix itself, we see the return of its rival, Mill City, while there was also the George E. Mowry Ranch, which was located at Van Buren and 16th Street. Both had lost their bids to be the official town site, and so they were ready, willing, and more than eager to steal the county seat away from Phoenix. I feel at this point I should clarify something. While it might seem a little odd to us today, to the hyper-political Americans of the 19th century, choosing a county seat was a life-or-death struggle. Being named a county seat often meant recognition, economic opportunity, and lucrative business deals that came along with government contracts. On the other hand, the opposite was also true. Failure to secure a county seat could mean obscurity or, even worse, failure as a settlement. Years ago, during my newspaper days, I wrote an article about such struggles, and if I remember to do it, I'll include a link to it under this episode on the website azhistorypodcast.com. During my reporting, I talked to a history professor who commented that this phenomenon was all too common in the West, as dreamers always thought today's cornfield was going to be tomorrow's new Chicago. And claiming a county seat meant their town wouldn't turn back into a cornfield. So I guess my point here is we should all remember that the tussle over the county seat was essentially about survival. In the legislation organizing Maricopa County, Governor Safford had provisionally named Phoenix as the county seat until elections could be held on a final location on May the 1st, 1871. As evidence of the usual heated conditions existing around such elections, we have an article in Prescott's Arizona Minor newspaper that quipped, quote, Old Mother Yavapai should have given her firstborn some written instructions for new beginners, judging from the dissension and jealousies now existing there. End quote. I don't have any real in-depth stories about the three-way fight for the county seat, but we do know that boosters on each side resorted to bribery and to using Odom members posing as Mexicans to illegally vote. 
One historian did note that how much fraud actually happened is hard to gauge, but observers at the time claimed whatever it was, it was not enough to actually impact the results of the race. Phoenix proper was able to secure the county seat with 212 votes, while Mill City received 150 and Mowry's Ranch came in a distant third with 64. While there were some protests about voting irregularity, no official investigation into the election was ever held. Afterward, a Phoenix resident writing to the Arizona Miner said, quote, We have had a very spirited election, and the feeling about the county seat aroused considerable animosity, but since it is over, everyone seems disposed to settle quietly down to their work. End quote. For now at least, the political conflict was over. Despite the place in history that destiny had waiting for Phoenix, we should remember, in the words of historian Bradford Luckingham, that it was not, I repeat, not a boomtown. Growth was actually pretty slow, and by the end of the 1870s, the settlement would only boast a little over 1,700 people. In fact, a nationwide economic panic in 1873 saw government and military contracts dry up, and it seemed for a bit like this would be the end of Phoenix, seeing as it was originally envisioned by Swilling as a place to grow crops and hay to feed the mines in Wickenburg and Fort McDowell to the east. Development basically screeched to a halt, and it would be a few years before the agricultural underpinnings were able to once again prop the community up. Phoenix was also noted for being a place where, well, nothing really happened. There was virtually no news in the community and a decided lack of activity. One resident bemoaned to the Arizona miner in February 1871 that, quote, We have not had any earthquakes, hurricanes, or other physical phenomenon that I could chronicle. Neither have we had any weddings, balls, parties, or other amusements or gatherings of the people to which ladies come out with their Sunday finery and the gentlemen with their store clothes. End quote. At the same time, however, Phoenix was your typical western town. There was housing construction, cultivation of fields, and then people in shops, stores, and most importantly, saloons. That last one was fairly prominent, as at least one history mentions that men frequently got drunk while in town, and that by the time the town officially incorporated in 1881, it already contained 15 saloons. There was also some of that gritty frontier justice that you would expect. In August 1879, a, quote, law and order committee full of the settlement's leading and best citizens led, I guess what you would call a mob of more than 200 people to oversee the lynching of two suspected murderers in the town square. One historian noted that this was no angry, spurred by pure emotion thing, but a calm business transaction as the sheriff and his deputies simply walked away from their duty to allow this group access to the prisoners. All in all, at least 16 men were lynched in Phoenix's early days. But all of this isn't to say that Phoenix didn't have anything going for it, because, you know, it certainly did. The Salt River Valley's rich soil, mild winters, and water supply were still powerful assets. By the beginning of the 1880s, Phoenix boasted every major business you could think of. Merchants, bankers, shopkeepers, the all-important saloon keepers, doctors, lawyers, blacksmiths, and carpenters. It even boasted an ice-making factory that produced 1,000 pounds of frozen water a day, and a deluxe hotel with a canal-fed swimming pool. 
two must-haves for a place that often soared over 110 degrees during the summer. During this time, we also find the foundings of the Salt River, later Phoenix, Herald newspaper, which was set up in 1878. Although I think my favorite bit is that we also find records for vocal teachers and dance instructors setting up shop during this period. And if you listen to the boosters, there was simply no better place to live in all of Arizona than Phoenix. The Salt River Herald would tell its readers that the merchants in town offered, quote, almost every conceivable article, from the finest cimbric needle to the latest improved agricultural machine, end quote. The growth of the town has not been feverish nor of mushroom order, the paper would note, but it has steadily and heartily improved. Canals continued to proliferate, many still based on the ho-ho-cum ones, but with many new ones being constructed as well. So we have the Maricopa Canal, which was completed in 1870, and the Grand Canal, completed in 1878. These canals also helped shape the local ecosystem, as settlers immediately began planting cottonwood, ash, poplar, and willow trees to shade and color their new homes. For decades afterwards, these trees would often be touted as part of Phoenix's appeal, with an 1885 map showing the city encompassed by shade trees and shrubbery, while an 1894 pamphlet claimed that the city's trees were, quote, so dense that the traveler approaching it from any direction will not see the houses until he is fairly within town, end quote. The long growing season and predictable water supply allowed farmers to experiment some with what they grew, but in coming decades, Phoenix farmers would rake in alfalfa, vegetables of all kinds, grapes, strawberries, apricots, peaches, and of course, citrus. Citrus trees were perfect for the climate, and the so-called orange belt near the Arizona Canal would really take off at the turn of the 20th century. For those who went to school in Arizona, you'll no doubt remember that citrus is one of Arizona's five C's, but I'm hoping to touch much more on that in a coming episode. Boosters were quick to tout this agricultural success, and soon the world was awash in descriptions of Phoenix as being the equal of the, quote, garden spots of the world, or, quote, the grain emporium of Arizona, or, quote, the garden spot of the territory, the American Nile, or even American Eden. During my college years, I was able to read the first edition of the Salt River Herald, which actually had to be printed in Prescott in the offices of the Arizona Miner because the ordered printing press hadn't arrived yet. In it, editor Charles E. McClintock, who is the brother of James H. McClintock, the early state historian who has been a constant companion on this podcast since the beginning, wrote that he considered Phoenix to be, quote, the shire town of the Garden of Arizona, end quote, and then went on to give the glowing descriptions that I quoted at the outset of today's episode. I've said it before and I'll say it again. 19th century hyperbole is downright fun to read. However, I do want to point out something unique about Phoenix. As one history of its rise pointed out, its founding and growth was different than pretty much any other town in the territory, and even across the greater southwest. For starters, Phoenix differed from other towns in Arizona in that it was not a mining town. This was no Jerome, Bisbee, or Tombstone where people rapidly descended to extract every last ounce of gold, silver, or copper out of the surrounding hills. And that means there was no mass exodus when mineral wealth ran out. Even Prescott, one of the most important cities in the entire territory, 
was originally built on mining and had kept going by its political importance. Secondly, Phoenix differed from other major western towns in that it wasn't founded as a cow town such as Dodge City, Kansas City, or Fort Worth. And finally, it had no connection to previous Hispanic settlements, which set it aside from most of the other major towns in the southwest. El Paso, Santa Fe, Tucson, Yuma, San Diego, Los Angeles, and San Francisco could all trace their origins back to the Spanish colonial era. Plus, Phoenix's only connection to Amerindian habitation was through old ruins, so the American settlers hadn't really infringed on places where someone was already living. And this lack of former roots left settlers wanting to set up a city that was seen as a classically American settlement. This meant people looked down their noses at the adobe structures that had made up the original buildings in the Salt River Valley. They had served the hohokam in Spanish for centuries, and the materials to make adobe was abundant and cheap to produce, but for the Victorian Americans, it was seen as messy and couldn't support the weight of the grand houses that were being built in the East. One source wrote that in its first decades, Phoenix, quote, had a decidedly rough frontier town appearance, end quote. That started to change in 1878, when a bricks works factory opened, and the completion of a railroad line to the relatively close city of Maricopa in 1879 meant that lumber could now be had. The Herald wrote, quote, Numerous buildings are going up all over town, most of them brick, some wooden, and very few adobe, end quote. When flooding occurred a decade later in 1891, the Arizona Republican would write with some delight that the waters had washed away some 50 adobe homes. Phoenix as a city was benefited, said the paper, since these, quote, miserable adobes have rendered the city unsightly for a number of years, end quote. The article went on to say that the writer hoped this would, quote, relieve the valley forever of the dreadful mud house, end quote. Instead, houses in the Queen Anne, French Second Empire, and Victorian eclectic styles were going up. This era of construction, by the way, can still be seen today if you go to Phoenix's Heritage Square on Monroe and 7th Street, just north of the Arizona Science Center. Brick was the hot new building material, especially after wooden buildings were banned in the city center following fires in 1885 and 1886. But the big takeaway here is that the majority of Phoenix residents were Americans from somewhere else and wanted desperately for their little oasis in the desert to be the equal of any true American city. Thus we have the almost comical spectacle of men wearing fine suits and hats and ladies in their gloves even during the hottest summers. One woman who grew up in the community during the 1880s would write, quote, My mother, being from the East, always prided herself on keeping up with things and many people made a very big effort when they came west. Women were well-dressed and they were very style-conscious because they didn't want to feel isolated just because they lived in the west. End quote. Of course, the downside to this push to make Phoenix a quintessential American town is the discrimination against anyone who didn't quite fit the mold. As was common everywhere at the time, the minority populations were always blamed for any crime, vice, or other issues plaguing a community. Since it had no Spanish or Mexican roots, the city's Hispanic population was always the minority, though one source says that they made up around half the population in 1870 and 1880. 
However, this ratio dropped soon after the railroad made it easier for Americans to emigrate to this growing desert metropolis. You can almost hear the disdain for the Mexican population in an 1893 description of the town that read, quote, Here are none of these sleepy, semi-Mexican features of the more ancient towns of the Southwest. End quote. Most of the Mexican men were still employed as laborers, while women worked as domestic servants or housekeepers. There was a small established clique of middle-class merchants, and upon occasion one member of the Hispanic race would rise to a prominent position, such as Henry Garfias, who would serve as town marshal. However, for the most part, the Hispanic population was shut out of the upper social circles, and so founded its own network of associations. There were even a handful of Spanish newspapers, though the use of Spanish was a very divisive issue, as the white population was always on guard for elements they perceived as leading to Mexican hesitancy to assimilate into the broader American culture. Shut out of the upper social rungs, the majority of the Hispanic population turned to the Catholic Church and their family gatherings for social and economic circles to run in. And if any of that sounds like it might still be true today... Well, congratulations for paying attention. Besides the Hispanic population, we also have to consider the Amerindians. Strictly speaking, unless they were students enrolled in so-called Indian schools, Amerindians did not live in Phoenix proper. But that didn't keep them from being a threat to public morality in the minds of many of the American settlers. A September 1881 meeting in Phoenix had a banner that read, Removal or Death for the Apache. Given everything we talked about up to this point, that sentiment shouldn't strike anyone as particularly odd or aggressive, but the thing was there weren't that many Apache around. The closest Amerindians were actually the Odom, living along the Gila River to the south or on the Salt River Reservation 10 miles to the east. And though the earliest American accounts always praised the Odom to the hilt for their gentle agricultural ways, it definitely didn't mean they wanted them in their town. Phoenicians were continually complaining about Amerindians loitering about the city, particularly at the railroad depot and city hall site. And seeing as the Odom knew better than to wear gloves, suits, and hats during the summer, these so-called naked savages were often the subject to verbal and physical abuse about their shiftless ways. In May 1881, ordinances were adopted to make it illegal to be in town, quote, without sufficient clothing to cover the person, end quote or even to stay in the city after dark unless a Amerindian was employed by a Phoenix citizen. Beyond Mexicans and Amerindians, which we have been dealing with since the beginning of the podcast, we also have to turn our attention to two other marginalized populations, small as they may have been. The first is African Americans. There never was a large African American population in Phoenix, and today they only make up less than a quarter of the city's population. However, by the 1880s, they did have their own institutions in the valley, including chapters of the Masons, Oddfellows, and Knights of Pythias, in addition to an African Methodist Episcopal Church. I honestly don't have much on their experience during this era, aside from one history noting that they experienced the same moves towards separation and segregation that African Americans were experiencing across the country. Under them is the last group I want to touch on, and were maybe even more reviled than any single minority group of the era. The Chinese. 
Having encountered such racism and prejudice in California, many Chinese, mostly male, had come to Arizona with the railroad. In the 1870s, however, they also went into what businesses they could, including operating laundries, restaurants, and grocery stores. Or, much like the Mexican population, they went out as laborers. A small Phoenix version of Chinatown even formed in a section of land bounded by Jefferson and Madison between 1st and 2nd Streets. Unfortunately, the prejudice that they had experienced in California also carried over to Arizona, albeit to a slightly lesser degree. White business owners resented them for operating businesses that competed with them. A newspaper in February 1886 publicly lamented what it called a, quote, Chinese monopoly. But more than that, the Chinese were particularly associated with opium dens, which the moralizing Victorian Americans connected with all sorts of vice and illegal behavior. Raids were frequent, resulting in many Chinese people landing in Phoenix jails, sometimes regularly. The Chinese population fell between 1880 and 1900 due to this social pressure against them, and was helped along in 1895 when a number of quote-unquote upstanding American businessmen bought up and closed several buildings in the Chinese district to, uh, let's say, encourage them to leave. The roughly 200 or so Chinese living in Phoenix in 1880 were by and large industrious and earnest, but they had the misfortune of being surrounded by a majority population ready and willing to believe the worst about them. As I said before, the Anglo-American population had a certain view of themselves and their city that they wanted to be preserved and adopted by outsiders. One historian noted that you can see this in the rhetoric of the time as Phoenix was being billed to the outside world as, quote, thoroughly American and its citizens are live and go-ahead people full of push and enterprise, end quote. And what good American wouldn't want to live in a city like that? I'm going to go ahead and leave things here for this week, with Phoenix still on the rise and getting ready for its appointment with Destiny. But we aren't quite through with the Salt River Valley just yet. Join me next week as we return to wrap up the story of Phoenix in the 1870s and early 1880s, and as we turn a spotlight toward the other settlements that also sprang up along the old Hohokam canals just a bit to the east. That's right. It's finally time to talk about my hometown, Mesa. And I guess we can give Tempe an honorable mention, too. Until then, I'm your host, David Rookhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. <laughs>